God did some incredible stuff in me during that time of worship. And uh, I just feel like he's powerfully encountering us today. And uh, he's gonna continue to do that. So my name's Sean, I'm, I'm part of the leadership team here at CityGate. And uh, we're continue, continuing in our series of, of King and Kingdom. And uh, we're looking at the culture of the kingdom of God today. And there is no greater and more concentrated piece of teaching in the whole of the world, I would say, than what we're gonna look at today. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And um, we don't have time to read the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's three chapters long, but we're gonna read considerable parts of it, and um, it's gonna feel like we're gonna do some work today, um, because I feel like this is an opportunity we don't just wanna pass by and scrape the surface, but actually go deep with God today. So let's open our Bibles, if you have that, or you might have a tablet on you, Keep that with you, keep it open, because we're gonna be working through this together. So turn to Matthew chapter five. I'm gonna start reading from um, uh, verse one to 12, and then we'll pick up a few other parts as we go. So it says this. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacekeepers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And uh, I mean, Jesus goes on to talk about murder and sexual impurity and divorce. He talks about prayer, he talks about investing our money, in giving, in loving our enemies, in how we judge others, and he does not hold back on any punches in the sermon. And I really wanna encourage you, tomorrow morning or whenever you read your Bible, please finish reading the rest of chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven, because in order to really capture the culture of the kingdom, um, that there's, no better, there's no better way to do that. Mahatma Gandhi said about the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't a Christian, but he said this, they contain a message that the world, that would save the world. What a pity that Christians have been listening to the message for 2,000 years, but they are like stones lying in the water for centuries, never soaking up a single drop. My hope is that today we soak up some drops. But I do believe he's got a point. I think for so many years, and over the centuries, Christians seem to have found ways not to live by this, rather than to live by it. John Stott, who's a great theologian, he once said that the Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Jesus turns upside down who it is that God considers to be blessed and turns inside out both Jewish and pagan ideas of how to relate to God and to people. 
I don't know what you think of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm sure many of you have come across it or read parts of it. And you may think it's self-help. It's a way of getting a better life, to be happy. A detox trip, a way to get spiritual and sort your life out. You might be quite religious and you think that the way to read it is seeing it as laws in order to attain salvation and get a ticket into heaven. Conversely, you actually might be a Christian here today and you've possibly got trapped into thinking that it's basically Jesus just saying, well, you're never gonna attain to this, so I'll do it for you, crack on with your life, you don't need to change anything, see you in heaven. And now, I know I'm being really flippant about that, I know we can't attain salvation and we need God's grace, but we mustn't read the sermon like that. There's so much more that it is offering us. And you might be someone that thinks, come on, we've progressed, haven't we? You can't tell me that sex outside of marriage is some sort of impure thing still. I'm not a slave to money. Murder isn't the same as anger. I'm fine. I'm not Stalin. I'm okay. Regardless of where you sit with this sermon, it is probably the most widely talked about teaching that humankind has ever had. And one of the reasons is that it spoke against the religious, powerful religious structures of the day. And actually, it still talks to that today. How is it that teaching written 2,000 years ago can still have this gut-wrenching effect that it possibly might even have on you today? I believe that the reason is that it speaks to the heart rather than to behavior. You see, Jesus has always been concerned about the state of our hearts, what's beneath the surface, and seemingly much less concerned with exterior activities and behaviors. With the sermon, he's almost like a deep sea diver with an enormous flashlight jumping in the water and putting that flashlight on what's beneath the surface, exposing that, not to bring condemnation, but to bring healing. So the sermon, it contrasts two ways, and often Jesus uses analogies. So he talks about two trees, or two paths, or two houses, but not in the way that we might first think. You see, Jesus isn't comparing a good person with a bad person. He's actually often contrasting two people that are actually obeying the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Um, And he never says, here are people who obey God's law and here are people that don't. He says, the law isn't changing you the way it's designed to from the inside out. In the sermon, he doesn't contrast people who pray with people that don't. He says, pray like this. He doesn't say, people that give and people that don't. He says, people say give like this. I say give like this. He never contrasts, he contrasts two characters that are both keeping God's law, yet one is poison fruit, a path to destruction, or a house of cards. Before we dive in fully, we need to just first understand who is Jesus even talking to this crowd of people. And we get some idea in the chapter before. It's the sick. It's the suffering. It's the demon-possessed. It's the paralyzed. It's those people that society would call unimportant and insignificant. And to them, these words are electric. 
but they're not astonishing words because they are brand new in the way Jesus teaches. He's actually using a lot of the same phrases and themes that the Jews of the time would have been really used to. So for instance, check out Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sits in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on this day and night. Being blessed by God, being in right relationship with God seems to be something to attain to. But it wasn't even just the law and the Psalms and the prophets that Jews were used to, it was embedded in Jewish culture. So 150 years before Jesus came on the scene, there was another Messiah-type figure called Jesus ben Sirah, and he wrote a few of his own proverbs about the blessed life. Here are just a few of them, if we can bring that up. It says, uh, he says, blessed is the man who can rejoice in his children. Blessed is the man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. That's an interesting one. Blessed is the one who speaks to attentive listeners. It sounds like biblical language, doesn't it? But maybe lacking love and compassion and grace. So you see, when Jesus starts his sermon with, blessed are those that, the downtrodden and the despised are probably thinking, well, he's probably gonna say, blessed are those that aren't us lot. And actually, what does he say? He says, blessed are you lot. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are merciful, who are always proximate to pain and suffering. You see, in this opening, he not only offends religious leaders, but actually he honors the downtrodden and the despised by describing the kinds of people that enter the kingdom of God first. So let's explore some of these character descriptors of the blessed, poor in spirit. What is he talking about, economic, spiritual? I think it's both. These are the spiritual zeros, the ones whose opinions about God no one really cares about at all, and those that are financially and sociologically crushed. They certainly don't have high thinking of themselves. So why does God call them blessed? Well, probably because they are the most open-minded to receive help. People who have less to lose are more open generally. People to whom following Jesus will mean rethinking how they deal with their resources, how they deal with their careers and their identity will generally be more closed off. What about hungering and thirsting after righteousness? What does hunger and thirst really look like? Well, for me, it's uh, headaches. <laughs> it's often hangriness. Um, my kids will tell you that. Uncontrollable longing. God is with those who have this longing for righteousness, for right relationship with people and with God. Blessed are those that see a lack of this happening in brothers and sisters around them, and it really gets them to their core. They see wrecked relationships, a lack of righteousness, and they're not happy with the world. They notice something that God is not happy with. In the same context, it's the same with blessed are those who mourn. Those that pay attention to the world and grieve about it, rather than distract themselves with things that make them happy. 
Blessed are the merciful. These aren't necessarily people who have all the answers, but they are grieved and they will bring mercy to the one in front of them. And like a mustard seed, that culture of mercy will start radiating among kingdom people. Blessed are the pure in heart, those that don't care about prestige, but simply want to see God and know him personally. The peacemakers, they see a lack of relationship and they insert themselves in and they bring reconciliation. It's not pleasant because both parties hate them because they don't take each side. These are the ones Jesus honors with being the first called into the kingdom of God. And this will have made the religious leaders really mad. But let's carry on. What does he say next? Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by foot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, this is so interesting. He doesn't say, you're in darkness if you don't live up to God's law and you're in the light if you do. He says, you are the light of the world. He's talking to the downtrodden and the insignificant and the despised and the sinners and he's saying, you are the light of the world. Isn't that interesting? The contrast of light and darkness, he relates to how we relate to the world. True Christianity is attracted to and attractive to people who disagree with them. Let me just say that again. True Christianity is attracted to and attractive to people that don't disagree with them. Firstly, attracted to. Salt is a preservative. It preserves meat and food. When kingdom people see things falling apart, they step in. They bring health and they bring restoration. Religious people, they keep to themselves. They hide under a bowl. Kingdom people are attracted to the world in that way. But they're also attractive to. Salt tastes good, right? But it's not there to make you think that salt tastes good. You notice that? Rather, it changes the flavor of the food. It changes the culture and the environment within, without drawing attention to itself. Salt makes everything feel better. Well, definitely in my world. Religious people make you feel condemned and makes them look superior. Wow, he just seems to know all the answers. He really put that guy in his place. He's really so much better than me. That's religion. It's judgmental. Jesus has a lot to say about judgment. In fact, actually, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's chapter seven, verse one to five. You can turn to it. I'm not gonna read it, but we all, we all morally judge. It's actually impossible not to. It's actually the basis of critical thinking and decision making. But, when, but what religion does is it makes moral valuations with superiority. 
Kingdom people see their sin as like planks and other people's sin as specks. Religious people see their sin as a speck and other people's sin as a plank. Anyone feeling uncomfortable so far? (laughs) Well, the religious people that were sitting there or probably standing on the side were certainly feeling uncomfortable, probably outraged already at this point. But the down and outs might be feeling great. People aren't, what, they're not meant to judge me? Maybe I'm, not, maybe I'm not as bad as I thought I was. I mean, to be honest, I am just a victim of the circumstance of it. It's not really my fault, is it? Jesus, he goes for the jugular. Jesus continually takes away anyone's hope in their own goodness and salvation. He always does this. So just when everyone thought that he was gonna go soft on God's law, let's see what he says. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be the least in the kingdom of, any, of heaven. Anyone that done that? Jesus didn't mean it like that. If Jesus was here today, he'd be okay with it. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Literally in one fell swoop. He's just leveled the playing field. And you know what, he doesn't even stop there. He then goes on to take six, use six, six examples of how we are meant to surpass the teaching of the Pharisees. So in verse 21, let's, let's go for two of these, okay? Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is a contemptible phrase, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and bring your gift. Religious people are concerned about murder and rape and acts of violence, rightly so. But Jesus says, if you despise someone, you've killed them. He's not saying that that's the same consequence by human law, but sin is sin. Whether it's seen on full display or whether it's managed in secret, it is destroying you. And Jesus wants to bring healing below the surface. You see, a murderer believes that they have a greater status than the one they're trying to kill. But we elevate ourselves above others. We can call people whatever we want to dehumanize them. The source of the issue he's getting at 
is self-elevation and pride. Jesus is getting to the inner conditions of the heart, the source of behavior. How do you think about people? Let's read on. This is hard work, isn't it? But it's good, right? Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You might say, I didn't didn't do the deed. But do do you use another person to excite your lust? And do you enjoy cultivating it? A woman or a man is not to be used in that way. And that's what pornography and sexual fantasy really is. It is a deeply destructive sin. And if you're stuck in it, Jesus really, really wants to help you, even today. I know so many people that have walked away from that addiction and into freedom. You see, Jesus goes beyond the law. He's trying to get to you to see a better way. There is a deeper issue than the act of adultery and sex outside of biblical marriage. Using someone else, saying that my desires are more important than someone else's, I'm making them an object of my pleasure. And is that really truly satisfying? Or is there a better way? The better way is loving someone enough not to use them in that way. Loving people rather than lusting after people. (coughs) Sex is an intimate bond between a husband and a wife in a covenant relationship. It unifies two people, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Sex actually protects that couple from the temptation of seeking intimacy outside of itself. It should. It should do that. That's how powerful it is. And if you're married, (laughs) do it. Do it a lot. (laughs) It is God's gift to you both for your good and the health of your marriage. Amen, I'm hearing a lot of amen now. (laughs) But if you are not married, Jesus is saying you're playing with fire. If you're trying to have what I designed only to be had within a covenant relationship, it will destroy you. Jesus shows us when we have sex outside of marriage, you're wanting physical, vulnerability and transparency with someone without giving personal vulnerability and transparency. Your action is saying loud and clear, I don't wanna get married. I'm not committing to you yet. My options are still open. And even if it's just a fantasy, it's like stabbing yourself in the heart. So what's Jesus' solution? Well, let's see. Gouge your eyes out and cut off, cut off your hands. So. Uh, <laughs> It's gonna be a bloodbath here today. (laughs) What is he on about? Surely he doesn't want us to blindly roll into heaven like stumps. (laughs) I mean, he just explained that it's in your heart and in your mind that sin is cultivated. So what good would it be for cutting off your hands and your eyes? 
He's winding the Pharisees up, actually, who believe that the members of your body caused you to sin. But Jesus is getting to the heart again. This is about our desires. Desire rules the world, we know it. People run with desires. Jesus is forcing the issue here to show how destructive sin can be, that giving yourself into it is pretty much like self-harm, body mutilation. That's how serious it is. But he's making a farce out of religion because the legalist thinks, well, I've just gotta blind myself. I've just gotta never interact with a woman or a man. That's the way to deal with it. Jesus is showing the desperate need for the human condition, desire. And he's showing what happens when our desires are distorted. But there is another way. He is that way. There is a fascinating uh, prophecy in Jeremiah 31, which is like centuries before Jesus. And it says this, this is the covenant I will make with my people Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. You see, Jesus is not here to trash the scriptures, but to fulfill them. This whole sermon is basically Jesus saying, don't start with the commandments, start with love, because love enables us to obey the commandments. In Romans 13, eight, it says, the one who loves fulfills the law, because love does no harm to a neighbor. Jesus is revolutionizing our perceptions and their perceptions of God. They were expecting him to say, well, live like this and God will be your father. Instead, he says, live like this if you already know God is your father. Religion obeys to get value, to get honor, and to get God to listen to you. It's full of fear and pride. The good news of Jesus is obeying out of value. You're already known a knowledge that you are incredibly valuable to him already. You have a perfect father before you obey. Don't do all the stuff to get blessing, but because you have been blessed. Completely upside down, isn't it? You are accepted first before you do anything. Knowing God as your father is the heart of what makes you a Christian rather than a religious person. Not being sure that God loves you is the heart of religiosity. Christianity has a high, high value for the law of God. Liberal religion says, God loves everyone, just try your best. Is that gonna give you inner wholeness? It's just sentimental, isn't it? You know you loved, but it doesn't cost that kind of God anything. Conservative religion says, here are the rules, do it. <laughs> you know you're a sinner, but you definitely don't know you're loved. Jesus says, I don't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's the only one who ever lived it out. Tim Keller puts this beautifully. He says, though he was mercy, 
He didn't obtain mercy. Instead, he was condemned so we might have mercy. Jesus was pure in heart, but on the cross, he had the face of God turned away from him, forsaken so that we are not forsaken. We have full access. He was hungry and thirsty for righteousness, but he was emptied out so that we could be filled and no longer be empty. Jesus says, I have fulfilled it. When you believe in him, not only does everything that you deserve come onto him, but everything he has done comes onto you. That is a high view of the law. It's not do your best. It's be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. But Jesus makes it possible. I don't know how you're finding this. You might be someone here that's just like, wow, this is just too much for me. And you may be getting the idea of like, well, if I point my life to perfection, blessing will follow. I kind of understand that correlation. But what if I'm broken already? What if I'm stooped in sexual sin? What if someone has taken advantage of me? What if I'm already divorced? What if my marriage is a mess? What if my anger has led me to a criminal conviction? Blessed are you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Are you hungering for righteousness? Are you poor in spirit? Blessed are you. No, but I've, I've ruined my life. I've got absolutely nothing to offer. I wonder if you've allowed what people think of you to become what you think of yourself. And then you believe that that's what God thinks of you. Are you gonna continue to strive and carve out your own identity, be your own savior, or will you allow a transcendent savior to speak truth over you and give you your identity? Will you allow him to father you and bestow on you the name child? Or will you continue, I'm sorry to say it like this, will you continue in your miserable orphan existence. You are an image bearer of a perfect father. These ideals of a flourishing life are impossible unless this is your identity. Even, when, even then, you will fall short. But you see, Jesus with these high heavenly ideals isn't like the religious leaders who just hand over heavy laws like millstones around their necks and doesn't help them. He lived it out himself as the purest hum human being ever and he lived it out on your behalf in order to make your identity possible, his righteousness imputed. That's the starting point, loved, accepted, and belonging. There's this, um, there's this incredible hymn that I came across. If I, actually, if we can have the band coming up. Um, <laughs> I try and write some songs myself, but to be honest, if, these four, if I'd written these four lines, I'd just, you know, how can I write another song after this? Listen to this, it's from John Newton. He says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. What is your choice today? There are two ways. One way, out of my goodness, I will seek to get God and other people to deal with my inner emptiness, or I'm gonna orient my whole life 
and approach to God on what Jesus has done. Be your savior or let him be your savior. This way of life is is the life and culture of the kingdom of God. It's heaven on earth now. Can Can you see how that kind of living completely changes the world? Heaven starts now and it looks like this. The impossible life in the natural, but the glorious life and culture in the supernatural. And yes, there is suffering and there is pain and there is unknown, but it's still beautiful and adventurous and full of supernatural goodness. Which road do you want? Do you wanna go down the road that most people travel or the narrow road? Let's stand together. We're gonna take communion together now. And uh, this is our way of just remembering the incredible way that Jesus died for our sins, took our punishment on himself. The bread represents his body and the, the juice represents his blood. And so practically, you can find these stations everywhere in the building. There's some at the back, some at the front. All the bread is gluten-free, so you don't even have to worry about that. And I wanna ask that if you're part of our prayer team here, I wonder if I could ask a favor of you. When you particularly go and get your bread and wine, could a few of you just stay over here at the prayer banner? And I want you to pray for anyone who for the first time is gonna take communion. That might be you here today. You actually have realized that I can't be my own savior. Jesus, you need to be my savior. It's a commitment to him, to his lordship. I'm gonna surrender all my stuff and all my failure and I'm gonna give it to his perfection. And so if that's you today, I wanna invite you to come and take communion for the first time. And when you do, I want you to pray with someone here who's gonna lead you in a prayer of salvation. Let's move now. And uh, as we do, a band is gonna just sing a song over us. So let's move now.